Hello, everybody. It's Watson. Why are we talking about rabbits? Rabbits are those things that jump down. They jump around the internet into rabbit holes. We try to pull them back out and investigate them for what they are, which is something relevant to us. Because most things have relevance. Take a moment. Today on Watar, after listening to that most excellent intro, we're going to sort of do a toast, a set of words to bathing. This is the third session on bathing. If you go back a couple weeks, we talked about what bathing is around the world as a function, as a material reality. What kind of water, how much water are people using? Are they taking baths or showers? How often? Englishmen, for example, we learned... Two sessions ago, we learned that Englishmen bathe every other day. It's pretty low on the European bathing totem pole. Then we talked about bathing as a type of as a type of uh, human inclination that is connected to deep meaning. We did that in the second. We talked about how the Romans understood bathing, and then we talked about baptism. And today we go a little deeper, and we look at the imagery in the old world when it came to water. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to look at, is baptism and bathing kind of the same thing in the old world? How did old world people, people pre-enlightenment before, say, the 1700s, how did those people understand baptism as bathing? And today we're going to look at different cultures. And we're going to end today by jumping us right into the conversation of what Christian baptism is, Orthodox Christian baptism, and then that will be session four next week. That's what we're doing today. So I want to start with Islam. First of all, Muslims, Christ, and baptism all go together. If you're a Muslim, you're like, that's right, they do. Christ is known to Muslims as a prophet, and his baptism was known just as John the Baptist Baptist was known. But where Muslims get a little irritated with the idea of baptism is that it, it has the form of death and resurrection. Paul, they argue, turned baptism from a basic conversation about ritual purity, getting clean, into something like a many layered conversation that leads to truth about God's death and then God's resurrection. And that's how Paul talks. And Muslims are like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. So Muslims do not accept the Pauline prescriptions for baptism, but water in Islam remains spiritually important. It's in the Quran that you see Allah sent down water from above to purify that which is below. So if you see all that imagery, you start to realize, ah, that has resonance really across cultures. Here's a, here's a purifying activity in Islam. It's called ghusl. And ghusl is an Arabic term for full body ritual purification. And it's mandatory before prayer, before adult sexual intercourse, or, well, you should, that's the only kind you should be having in Islam. But when two people in Islam decide to have sex, they should 
bathe after as a ritual, right? Islamic prayers demand a ritualistic washing before going to Hajj, right, to Mecca. You should ritually wash. If you've lost consciousness, for whatever reason, after you wake up, you must wash. Before sort converse, converting to Islam, you should wash. Before reciting the prayer of repentance for Sunni Muslims, you should wash. Wudu is part of this ritualistic canon of purification using water. You can see that water plays a serious role. Water is necessary to get clean. Aha. And to get clean is something like one of our tasks in life. Although in the Islamic tradition, I would argue that you can't really get clean before God. It's not really possible, which is not totally unlike Christianity. But it's a much more rationalistic and singular layer now, in some Muslim traditions, in the Sufi tradition, there's, it's a many-layered interpretation, water has it. But I would argue that, and I think Muslims would agree with me, it's much less nuanced in terms of the application in the world. Like, get clean, like actually get clean. And we'll see that that's also a scientific concept. And I would argue Islam and modern science are pretty close in that way. Hinduism, what are they doing? Well, I mean, Hinduism and water is like... It's everywhere. This is from a Hindu scholar on what water is. Water represents the non-manifested substratum from which all manifestations derive. <laughs> so water is the place in which resides all the non-material things. Whoa, but water is material. Yeah, it's material if, you know, you're Einstein or something and you want to... But in life experientially in Hindu life, water is like closer to sub it's, it's substratum. It's be, it's below material reality. It's not H2O. It's something else. It's non manifest reality, which gives birth to all manifest reality. That's pretty wild. In other words, water is like God. That's something really important to understand in Hinduism, and really across cultures, water and God, they're super connected. So before starting a meal, traditional Hindus will sprinkle water on the plate or around the plate. Uh, kings use water always to sprinkle and purify during the coronation in Hindu tradition. Uh, Sandhya, which is a ritual purification through meditation, is always initiated so you there's a purification of thought by thought we'll get into that in a minute that that's called sandhya and that sandhya always commences with an actual water purification right there's achamana which is a type of sipping of water during prayer during mantras and there's marjana which is the sprinkling of water right on a body so that it can purify the mind. What? But this is Hinduism, man. Rig Veda. That's one of the, 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 the holy writs. Is the, water is the residence of Nada. And Nada is the eternal being. And so water itself is, is the underlying principle of existence. 
water, man. In fact, a jar of water is said to be the divine essence. It is itself an icon of God. Let's keep going. What about ancient Greece? <laughs> these cats, these ancient Greeks, man, you talk about water and purification rituals. The Elysianunian cults, the cult of Demeter, they had adherents that were washed in waters, kept in basins, and once they got clean enough, they were then taken to the sea. What? <laughs> yeah. They washed before going to the sea because the sea was considered, uh-oh, we're going to see this in Jungian philosophy, or, uh, psychotherapy as well. The sea was the essence of, how should we put it? Spiritual cleansliness. It was like God. It's the place you got purified from all evil. It was goodness. And so you had to wash to go to the sea. In Athenian politics, the ecclesia, the, the assembly of political lawmakers, they purified themselves before each lawmaking session. And they did it by sprinkling water and then carrying the body of a sacrificed piglet around. Athenian temples were treated the same way. Individuals purified themselves by washing before approaching the gods. Whole cities purified themselves. Yes, by sprinkling water. And also by, this is so interesting, by super cleaning the scapegoat. So the scapegoat in ancient Greece was an actual person. Sorry, person. You got picked. And that person then was super cleaned. Loofahs, like rock loofahs to clean them. Get them all cleaned up before sending them out to die in the wild, wild wilderness. So the scapegoat in Greece was washed up before being sent out to die so that he, the scapegoat, may wash up the city. And Iona had a, a particular party that they called Thargelia. Yeah, and they were really good at cleaning the scapegoats before sending them out to die, Right? How about Asclepius? Asclepius, the son of Apollo, right? And the brother to the, the, god, of, the god of good health, Hygieia. Asclepius was like a royal member of the hygiene family. <laughs> he, he was the healing family. And he was said to be represented at the great baths of Dion. And so what did you do there? That's where you went to go sleep near the water. Ooh, this rings of the parable of the man who sat and watched the water in the New Testament until finally he got up and climbed in it to be healed. Well, at the sanctuary of Epidaurus, you went and took a, your bed and you slept there. And these little beds... There was this thing called encomesis, and encomesis was this process of trying to imbibe the holiness of the water by sleeping near it. And they did this as an imitation of divine wetness, of getting close enough to the divine that it would splash on you, and so you could be born again. Greece! I mean, guys... This was a podcast, a series of four podcasts. This is about baptism as bathing. Guys, when we get to 
Christian baptism. This stuff is relevant. Jewish rituals, I'm not even going to go on because there's a million of them. Right? Before the ordination of priests in Exodus, before the sacrifices, Leviticus, childbirth, cure of skin diseases, purification after contact with dead animal carcasses, with human corpses. Don't touch one of those. You're going to need a lot of water. Okay. Water wipes impurities clean. It happens all throughout the Torah, all throughout the Old Testament. Right? And then it changes a little bit after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., it changes a little bit because basically many of those rituals go away. One thing that they've kept, and you can even go, I don't know if they have it in Reformed synagogues, but in Orthodox synagogues in, in Israel, you'll, you'll find the mikvah. It's a ritual bath. you got to climb all the way in it. <clears throat> when we get to our debate on Orthodox Christianity, you got to get all the way in the mikvah. And there's where you get converted and purified. right? And you would go into that thing for lots of things after menstruation, after childbirth, all kinds of things. This isn't really old world. This is new world. But I want to talk about psychotherapy, the world of Jordan Peterson. Psychotherapy, which is really draws a lot, whether anyone likes to admit it or not, but Freud would. It draws a lot on alchemy and the ancient world of chemistry and how the chemical mind can be shifted and moved around in order to attain different degrees of consciousness. So alchemy has a, a type of psychology of water. And Carl Jung was really into this. He, he was like super into it. And his biggest analytical takeaway, which I find fascinating, was that the ego needs to usually, in most human beings, needs to be dissolved but be careful, not, not always and not utterly. But what he sees is that there's a, there's a journey toward wholeness whereby something bigger than the self needs to be present. And so what he says is the idea of immersion is a type of dissolving of the ego. And the best way to dissolve the woke ego, in other words, the, the ego of one who is conscious is to have them be somewhat overcome by the unconscious. And the unconscious, well, there's Edward Edinger actually writes about this, who's, who's Jungian. He, he, he studies Jung. He, he writes that larger things threaten smaller things. And so one thing that he would do and what he would advocate is, is that people who suffer narcissism or traits of arrogance, they should be brought to the ocean. Can you hear all the imagery, the iconography in that? Is the ocean, it, it's not going to cure your narcissism. Oh, but yet it might. Because it's so big. It's so unknown and terrifying. It's a representation, an icon, an image of the unconscious and the unconscious needs to rise up in order to put your ego in place. So the unconscious self is a type of C and it's brought forward so it can dissolve the ego. Here's the other thing that happens according to these young guys, big people, big consciousness, big ideas, big talkers, big, big humans can be experienced as a threat. And what young well, and Edgar, and they say is that 
the big person with the big voice and the big ideas that this person overwhelms smaller voices or smaller egos. And when that happens, it's, it's a one-sided attitude encountering a larger, more difficult, a type of unconscious creation comes at them, this big voice, big ego. And when that happens in Jungian analysis, the smaller person can be dissolved. It, the smaller person can go into a state of solutio. And this is not good. And Edgar and Jung, they argue this should not happen. It's bad. And so there's a certain degree of fight that should go on whenever oh, too many big, big consciousness, consciousnesses overwhelm small consciousnesses. It's got to be balanced. They also talk about falling in love. It's like being sucked up into the ocean, into the unconscious. It's an impossible thing to control. The ego wants control. So... I could keep going, right, about water, cleansing, bathing, getting cured, healed, purified. But what does it all mean, the study of bathing and this imagery? I, I think what you're seeing here is something like a multi-tiered meaning, a hierarchical meaning manifestation in the old world. I think what you're talking about this is what hierarchy looks like when it comes to what water is. You're seeing human beings from across the universe of history, different cultures, different people, they're groping towards something like getting clean. And they're doing it on many levels and for many reasons. But the key thing that I care, I don't care, I don't care what you see, but I, I want you to hear this. The key thing is to see, I think, that there's a movement toward getting clean. That's the important thing. That human movement, the human inclination to be clean, to be healed, to be whole. That's the singular. That is the unifying symbolos. It is the thing you can say about human beings across all cultures. We move to be cleaned. We move toward cleansliness, right? And we move toward getting toward getting clean because we sense sin, filth, dirty. Everyone feels this. Uncle Seth feels this. Uncle Seth's coming on in another week, I think. There's a multiplicity of bathing and cleansing acts, but there's a single inclination toward purification. We're united in the need to get clean, but we're varied, right, and diverse in our attempts at it. This is old world symbolism at work. But please notice, and this, I want you to notice and I'm going to use a phrase. I want you to notice with abundant energy. I am not saying that all the acts of getting clean, all the acts, the individual acts, the ways, the means, I'm not saying that those are all equal. They are not equally meaningful as a healing mechanism. Finding a scapegoat and cleaning him really well and then sending him out to die of hunger 
I am not saying that is an equal measure to a baptism on Mount Athos. What I'm saying is all humans grope toward purification. Even you new worlders, the three of you listening to this show. Yeah, that's right. The new world is not free of this need to get clean. We, we all get dirty. The difference is in the age of enlightenment, for light people, getting clean is always, and I want to be really clear, always, 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 a true light person, a true atheistic, scientific, atheistic humanist, a true living by every principle of scientific humanism, a true light person must always understand getting clean on the level of materiality. They can't have a poem about it. They can't just go on and on about the beauty and the unique nature of the cleansing act. Getting clean is always a utilitarian notion of removing dirt because getting clean is relative to the material reality. That's what light personhood is. It's living in the material reality as a material being. That's what atheism is. It's that this world is all we have. And so you don't get to do poetry about getting clean. You can, but you're, you're betraying your high priests. Light people aren't interested in the notion of purity as a value. Purity isn't good. Purity is just something you're trying to achieve in order up to gain a utilitarian advantage. It's useful to be clean. It's not good. It's useful. To talk of bathing as baptism in the old world is to talk of food as communion. To talk of bathing as baptism in the old world is to talk as sleep as a type of death in the old world. But to talk of these things that way to a materialist is just a friggin' waste of time. An honest, earnest, light person is just getting bored at that point. Even though we all know every type of poetry applies to every type of soul, the problem is if you don't think you got one of those... You got to stick to the material facts. Even Uncle Seth. Here's the thing. Nobody lives like that. That is Watar for today. Another baptism bathing conversation. And next week we finish such conversation with the fourth installment on bathing and baptism. And that is, what do Orthodox Christians, the old world Christians say about this? How should they get baptized? How does it work? Who does it? When? Where? How does it work? That next time on Watar. Check us out, www.first-things.org. We're out throwing capies, sending people into the field. We are do-gooders. <laughs> I say that with tongue-in-cheek. We're people out trying to serve others so that we can become better people, and we do it in the Peace Corps Small Project Development model. Two years in the field serving others. I would love for you to consider joining us and supporting us at www.first-things.org. Who loves you? See you soon on Water.